Well, last week, uh, we looked at Paul's letter to the Ephesians as a whole, and we saw that God's great purpose is to bring all things together under his kingdom rule in Jesus Christ. Now, as we progress through this epistle, uh, we're going to want to keep this big picture reality at the forefront of our minds. We're going to want to see all the rest of this letter through this overarching theme that Paul has in it. This is the theme of the book, and, and it's, it's the direction, it's the flow that we see. So uh, while we're going to be taking our time going through it, we'll take each, uh, each passage. Uh, when I say passage, we're looking at a unit of thought. And as we look at that unit of thought, we might use the word pericope. It's just because it's fun. So we're talking about these different pericopes, these units of thought that are captured in each of these passages. And we'll go through and we'll look at the passage as a whole, but then we'll kind of backtrack, as we'll do with this passage, and look at some of the concepts underneath. Uh, if, if this were a bridge and each of these pericopes had a main idea that formed a, a, a pillar, a column that supported that bridge, this suspension bridge, these Smaller ideas within that, these sub-concepts, are sort of like the supporting cables that, that hold it up. We're going to be digging into those as we go along, and all of these pillars of thought and the supporting ideas bear along the author's flow of thought, the direction that they're going with that big-picture reality, which is the reconciliation of all things to God and Christ. So today, we're going to be looking at the text we just read, Ephesians 1, 1 to 1-14, and we'll see this core reality as we do so. God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. As you look at this pericope, this unit of thought in this first passage, recognize this core reality. God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ. In other words, God's glorious grace is shown in His relationship to His people. Now, before we started this Ephesians series, you may remember that we went through a, a mini-series on marriage, sexuality, and family, and we'll be talking about that in our annual membership meeting after the service today. But what we see in how God designed marriage, sexuality, and family is that He is revealing Himself and His relationship to His people. Very much the same way that we see in the book of Ephesians, God couches this in relationship word pictures. We'll see the sonship, the adoption that goes along with this. God does not do this by accident. In case you thought God just stumbled through what he's doing. No, no, this is deliberate. God could have, could have expressed this anyway, and he chose to do it this way. Now, this core reality, God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ, is shown in, even in the greeting. Paul colorfully paints even his greeting with the idea of this letter and the concepts that are throughout it. Even though this particular greeting is a little shorter, less detailed than what Paul does in most of his other letters, uh, it's really to the point. You see in those first two verses, uh, he says this is Paul writing an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So what he is already pointing out just in identifying himself is that he is not an apostle of Christ Jesus because he worked his way toward it. 
he, he had done that as a Pharisee, worked his way up the ladder, so to speak, to achieve a certain level of respect as a rabbi, to eventually perhaps serve uh, on, the, on the Sanhedrin, on the ruling council. But that's not how he became an apostle of Christ. He became an apostle of Christ, a special, special messenger by the will of God. This will of God choosing Paul from the moment of his conversion already had him set out, and as we'll see throughout this passage, long before, before the creation of the earth, had him set apart as a special messenger, an apostle. And then the second verse, still in the greeting, we see him, as he so often does, greet them in this way, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He recognizes that this grace and peace is central to everything that we do. It's key to our walking, but it is also not something that we muster up. It's not a matter of positive thinking or new thought or manifesting or any of those things. It is given to us in Christ by God. So as, as the Father gives us this grace and peace, Paul is uh, pointing out in one of my favorite commentaries that I recently discovered in the last year or two, uh, the Enduring Word Commentary. If you're looking for a good online commentary, I want to recommend it. You can jot it down so you can keep track of it. The Enduring Word Commentary by David Guzik. Uh, there are lots of commentaries online. Be wary because many are false teaching. There are many cult-type commentaries out there. So be careful. This is one I would recommend, the Enduring Word Commentary by David Guzik, who is not paying me to endorse it. But this grace and peace concept in, in God's initiating love, bringing this about, is already painting with broad strokes and bright colors the beauty of what we're going to see in the rest of the passage. Now, as we go through this, we're going to be seeing... God inspiring Paul to lay out for us what it means to be in Christ. You may remember in our time together last week, we talked about the fact that the first three chapters of Ephesians are indicative. They have something to do with our identity. They indicate who we are in Christ. They describe our position because of what God has done in and for us. The last three chapters of Ephesians have more to do with an imperative. They are the, the commands, if this first three chapters is true of you, if you are in Christ, if you are the son of God, the daughter of God, then here's what it looks like to reflect that reality, to walk in the peace and grace that he has given you. Today, we're looking at just this first portion that describes for us the beauty of who we are in Christ, and also, through it, the purpose of God placing us in Christ. That'll be developed a little more uh, in the next passage. But let's, let's begin by looking at who we are in Christ. In Christ, first off, we see that we are blessed. We are blessed. What does this mean to us? What is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of those who are in Christ. All right, what is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of those 
who are in Christ. Now, we'll, we'll look at the passage in just a moment, but I want to point out to you that just the, the reason we want to include that term spiritually true of Christ and spiritually true of us is it's true that Jesus was Jewish. It may not be true that you are Jewish, right? It is true that Jesus died and rose again. That is not literally physically true of you. That's why you're still sitting here and having this conversation. However, it is spiritually true of you. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead will raise those who are in Christ from the dead to be raised up with Christ. The spiritual realities that are true of Jesus are true of us. Hopefully that will become clear to you as we walk through this. So look at verse 3 as we begin here. He begins with this, really what, what amounts to a topic sentence for the letter. This first phrasing here is really important. Paul begins with the praise of God. Your translation may read, blessed be. This idea here in the blessing is a loving praise, a praise and worship of the person of God. Read what he says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, there are a couple of parts here that are really necessary for us to see. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Again, what is spiritually true of Christ is spiritually true of us who are in Christ. If we are in Him, then we receive what is received by Him. If we are in Him, then we walk with Him. It's no longer us, but we are in Christ. You're going to see that phrase. In fact, I would encourage you to, to mark it, highlight it, underline it as you encounter it in Him, in Christ. We're going to see that over and over in the text as we go through this chapter and these, these, uh, even the entire book. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Now notice, what is true here is already settled in heaven. We are in Christ, and where Christ is seated, we'll see later on, we are seated. We are seated with Him in the heavenly realms. The eternal realities, spiritual blessings in Christ, remain always true for us even as what is real in heaven is eternally real. For you and I, we have many blessings, many temporal blessings, that we might, you know, we might look at these blessings and say, wow, you know, this is really, this is really neat. We want, you know, we want to thank God for what He's done for us. We want to thank God for uh, providing for us. We have a Thanksgiving holiday. We pray before meals, and, and we give thanks to God. But most of our prayers tend to focus on temporal things. When we seek God's blessing, we, we ask Him to heal our physical illnesses. We ask Him to provide for our needs physically in this temporal realm. But what Paul is assuring us here is that it is bigger than that. God has already given us greater blessings than you ever think about praying for. All of the spiritual blessings in Christ are yours when you are in Christ. Settled in heaven for you. Now this, this blessing that he gives us 
is important for us to recognize. He has blessed us. God's doing the doing. But it also means that these blessings are ours. They belong to us in Christ. His resources, His blessings, His provision, they're, they're not things that we might get. They're not things that if we, you know, if we press hard enough, we might work our way up to. If we have enough faith, they might be accessible to us. We kid ourselves with the idea of having enough faith, strong belief. There's a reason Jesus said that faith as small as a mustard seed can move mountains. This idea of having more, stronger belief, stronger faith is not rooted in the Scriptures, but it's rooted in the same type of thing that leads to the new thought, positive thinking ideas. If you can believe it and you can conceive it, then you can achieve it. That's not biblical. That's New Age kind of garbage. And when I say New Age, I mean super, super old, because long before we called it New Age, it was out there. What matters is not the strength or amount of your faith, but the one in whom you place your faith. If you believe in the airplane you're flying in, you can be super nervous. You can be scared to death. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter how much you believe it. Do you believe it enough to get in the plane? Because the reality of the plane does the work. It has nothing to do with whether you believe it or not. You could totally doubt that plane, and it's still going to do what it does. Where it's going to make an impact is what you're going to do about it. God has given us these blessings in Christ. We need to recognize that they're ours and they come from Him. He's doing the doing. Spurgeon says it this way. We're not sitting here and groaning and crying and fretting and worrying and questioning our own salvation. Many of us are. We, we do that. That's our tendency. In fact, Spurgeon wrestled with periods of deep despair and depression even throughout his ministry. But he's saying like David, yeah, my feelings might go there. I will not tolerate this thinking in my life. We as Christ followers are not just here sitting, groaning, crying, questioning. Instead, we recognize, continues Spurgeon, he has blessed us. And therefore, we will bless him. If you think little of what God has done for you, you will do very little for him. But if you have a great notion of His great mercy to you, you will be greatly grateful to your gracious God. He's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Notice next that in Him we are also chosen. We're chosen. Our relationship to God is initiated by God. Our relationship to God is initiated by God. Look at, at verse 4. After pointing out that, that uh, he's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, he says, for he chose us in him. He chose us. That's not about your faith. That's about what God has done in you. Now, don't get me wrong. Your faith plays a role. But your faith, as we'll see in chapter 2, comes from him anyway. He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Hmm. He chose us. That means that God did not wait for you to fix you. 
He did not wait for you to realize how desperately you needed him. He came into you to cause you to realize that you needed him. He chose you. This is God's initiating love that we see throughout the Old Testament before we ever get to the New Testament gospel. We see the the initiating, redeeming love of God in His people Israel, calling, correcting, intervening, making them who He has called them to be even through their failure. The gospel of Jesus Christ does the same thing in the life of the believer. We'll look at that more specifically next week. We'll, we'll talk about the idea of predestination and assurance that comes out of this chapter next week. Because I know that is, a, that is kind of a, a, a struggle for a lot of folks. Let me tell you this, just to ponder it. Don't set the place on fire when I say it. Just ponder it. Come back next week, we'll find out. Every person who believes the Bible believes in God's predestination. Calvinist, Arminian, doesn't matter. They all believe in God's predestination because it's in the text. The differences between different denominations and theologies has to do with how it plays out and the reasoning behind it. We'll talk about that more next week, but I just want to put that thought in your head so that you can be mad at me throughout the week and we'll deal with it more next week. So we're blessed, we're chosen. Third, we see that we are adopted in Christ. In Christ we are adopted. God has placed us into the exact same relationship as the Son. Don't let this slide by you. I think sometimes we we read through these things and the words go in and the words then come out and, and maybe we miss what that means. We're adopted by God in Christ. God has placed us He's doing the doing. He has placed us, like a parent adopting a child, into the exact same relationship as the Son. How many of you know that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God? Right? Jesus is the one and only unique Son of God in that He alone is begotten of the Father. But in the principle of God's adoption of us, when we are reborn in Christ... John 1.12 tells us that as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Now this has a a special significance in Roman culture. We would see this among many of the, the Caesars, the emperors, that they were adopted by an uncle or, or a, another ruler that would put them in the same standing as a biologically begotten son. It put them in such a position that they actually forfeit any rights and even in, in many cases any debts that accrued under their previous identity in the previous family. When they are adopted, they receive the full rights and responsibilities of being a child of that parent, of that father. That's how it was reckoned. In this adoption that God has granted us, He places us into the exact same relationship to Him that His only begotten Son has. 
if you are in Christ, then the relationship that Christ has with the Father is the exact same relationship that you have with the Father. Paul puts a lot of mind-melting things into his writings here, especially in the book of Ephesians. Some have called this the, the, the crown of Pauline teaching. This is the, the compendium of all that he captures. And if we look at the book of Romans, and it spells out the, the plan of salvation and the state of humankind and God's role in, in saving us, Romans has a tendency to focus a little more on the individual impact and the grace that God grants us. Justification by faith and so on. In Ephesians, that's not neglected, and all of the things that we see here are, are very uh, personal. You don't have faith because you join the right club. You don't become a member of the church, and that gives you faith. No, it's your faith in Christ that qualifies you to be part of His body. But the focus in Ephesians tends much more toward the wholeness. Remember that the overarching theme is God bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ so as we see our individual lives in Christ in the book of Ephesians we are drawn together as a family his expression of his character and glory in the grace that he gives to us as individuals is highlighted in the grace that he gives to us together as a body as a family we are adopted we are made His in a special relationship and we receive the full inheritance as if we ourselves were begotten sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father. That is as huge as it could possibly get. Think about it. Let it sink in. In Christ we are blessed, we are chosen, we are adopted. And through this, this blessing, choosing, adopting love of Christ, of God in Christ, we are also redeemed. We are redeemed. Our eternal, unpayable sin debt has been fully paid by the blood of Christ. It's been fully paid. Our eternal and unpayable sin debt has been fully paid by the blood of Christ. We know that the wages of sin is death. The problem with making that payment is you can only do it once. And that debt is not cleared because the death that is required is eternal. Separation from God. Praise be to God that the gift, the gift of God in Jesus Christ is eternal life. So we receive this gift from Him. This is the redemption that we have. In Romans 3.23, we see that all have sinned, right? He's quoting Isaiah. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, of His perfect righteous standard. That's what's required. You fall short of God's glory. You fall short, period. Like trying to jump across the Grand Canyon. It really doesn't matter how far short you fall. You miss that edge, goodbye. That's how it is in Christ. We are, that's how it is in our lives apart from Christ. We are separated from God with this unpayable debt, an uncrossable chasm. But 
all of sin fall short of the, of the glory of God. But in Christ, all are made right because God has made him a sacrifice of atonement. If you have a more literal translation or, or perhaps an older translation, it might say a propitiation for our sin. That means the righteous wrath of God, His justice, His holiness, is appeased by the payment made in Christ. It's not simply that it's wiped away. That, that's true, but that's partial. It's not simply that God overlooks our sin. Yeah, true, but partial. He overlooks our sin in the same way that he saw the blood of the Passover lamb on the door of the Israelites. Death passed them over because they were under the blood. In the same way, we in Christ have been redeemed. Notice what he says, looking at verse 7. No, I don't want to, I don't want to pass over verse uh, 6 from the previous verse. Uh, when we were talking about being uh, adopted, Picking up the end of 4 into 5. In love, we see He predestined us for adoption to sonship. He made us His, placed us in that relationship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will. It's God's pleasure, God's will. And don't miss out on the fact that it's to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves. The verse we want to see for our point of being redeemed is in verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His, what? What's it say? Blood. Through His blood. We have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. This powerful truth of being redeemed in Christ, this is how we gain God's forgiveness. It's not that God just says, well, everybody gets a pass because I'm, I'm, I'm loving, I'm, I'm merciful. If that were the case, right, so picture, if you would, that you have a child, and someone commits a crime, breaks into your home, kills your child, do you want a judge who's going to see that person and say, you know, I'm going to have mercy on you, just give you a pass? No, justice demands, demands a reckoning. God's holiness, God's justice demands a reckoning. And that's what's spotlighted in the Old Testament. When we see the law, it's drawing a circle around the holiness of God, if that were possible. It's drawing attention to the justice, the righteousness, the perfection of God. In the New Testament, God hasn't changed, but the spotlight is hitting a different part of His character. It's highlighting the mercy of God. That mercy is present and clearly seen throughout the Old Testament. But the highlight, the spotlight, is on His holiness and justice. In Christ, we see that the holiness and justice of God is not gone. He hasn't changed. His standards have not gone away. Jesus emphasized that. Not one tiny jot or tittle will disappear from the law until everything is fulfilled. But what fulfills it is the mercy of God given to us in Christ. We are redeemed. We have redemption by His blood. Notice it doesn't say we have redemption by His power. We'll see the power of God in the resurrection of Christ. It doesn't even say we have redemption in His 
mercy and His love and God's devotion to us. No. There's a ransom to be paid. There is a sin debt that must be cleared for God to be both holy and merciful. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans. God does these things so that He can be both just and the one who justifies. Here in Ephesians 1, we see this picture that in Christ we are redeemed and our un eternal, unpayable sin debt has been fully paid by the blood of Christ. Because of that, we can be restored because we have been ransomed. We've been paid for. In case you thought you needed to do something to maintain your salvation, to clean yourself up, to get right so that you can be worthy of God, let me assure you, you will always fail in that because you will never be worthy of God. But your debt has already been paid and you have been placed into Christ because of God's love demonstrated for sinners, Romans 5.8, in Christ dying for us in our place as a substitute. Therefore, He has placed us in this relationship we have been adopted. He has set us apart for Himself, initiating it by Himself, and we are chosen, and He has given us everything in the Son. He has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. Blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed. Notice also in Christ we are informed. We are informed. As His true children, God has let us in on His wonderful plans. As His true children, God has let us in on His wonderful plans. Now, uh, I didn't like the word informed, just a little, you know, insider trading here. I'm going to let you know what's going on in my brain. I look at that and I say, informed? That's just dumb. Let's go with aware. We're aware. Well, let's, let's read the verse. And we'll see maybe why I chose the word that I chose. Looking at verse 9, we'll, we'll pick up with the, with the uh, back end of verse 8. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment. And as we saw last week, His purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. We are informed in that He has made known to us the mystery of His will. As we sang early, earlier, this mystery has been revealed to the universe. Notice in the text what Paul writes, and the song well reflects that. This is in the passive voice. This is more than our awareness. The emphasis is not on our knowledge. The focus here is on the fact that God has revealed it to us. God has made it known. Not that we know. Yes, we know. That's part of it. But the focus, the emphasis, is that God has revealed Himself. He has made known to us this mystery, this secret that has been hidden. 
from those who are unregenerate. It was even hidden from the prophets. They saw glimpses throughout the Old Testament. They saw, as theologians like to say, the, the peaks of the mountains, but they didn't get to see all the things that went on in the valleys. They saw the type of Christ, the, the foreshadowing of Christ. But in Christ, we have this mystery revealed to us. Not because we're so smart, in case you thought we're smarter than other generations. Not because we're so holy with our spiritual eyes, in case you thought that you're here today because you're holier than the people that are not here today. No, no. God, the same God who blessed us, chose us, adopted us, and redeemed us, has led us in on His wonderful plans. He has made clear to us what has never been clear until Christ revealed it. So we are informed. We have been made aware. The emphasis is our passive role. We have been involved in it. In fact, Jesus says in John 15, Verses 15 and 16, I don't think that's in your program, so you may jot it down. He says to his disciples that, I call you friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know the Father's business. As God's true children, he has let us in. He has involved us in his plans. When we were kids, uh, every, you know, we'd have big parties and I always loved, it's strange how much I hate parties, but when I was a kid, I, I, I loved the family get-togethers that we would have. Christmas Eve, everybody would come. Well, at one point when I was uh, middle ages there, middle, middle youth, I don't remember exactly when. I don't exa remember exactly why. Maybe it was my dad's birthday. We kids put together a surprise party for my parents. And I loved the idea that we had a secret that was going to bless them. We were, we were going to make them happy. We are going to have this good time. And we worked out the details so that people would come. Dad would be busy with chores when we were out milking, and, and the cars would come. And, you know, I'm kind of peeking around the corner. Oh, I can't wait to see it happen. When you know about a surprise party, that means you're part of a special group of people. You're involved in it. You get to be part of the planning. You get to jump up and say surprise, all that kind of stuff. The same thing is true when we're talking about how Christ reveals to us the mystery that has been hidden from the, the beginning of creation. It's been veiled. In this unveiling to us, what the world does not yet see, they will. Either because they are brought into the family or because when the judgment comes down, it becomes clear and evident. In either case, they will see. But we get to see now. God has let us in on what He is doing. That's a powerful reality. Because He has blessed us, chosen us, adopted us, and redeemed us, He has, for that reason, having made us His true children, He has informed us. He's made us aware and let us in on His plans. Next, notice... In Christ, we are purposed. We are purposed. Now it's probably foreign to previous generations to use purpose as a verb, but that's where we are. We are purposed. Our involvement in God's glorious plan is both intentional and settled. 
Our involvement in God's glorious plan is both intentional and settled. Take a look, if you would, at verse 11. In Him. Notice that phrase again. In Him, in Christ. We were also chosen. He'll clarify what that means in just a moment. Having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Before we press on to verse 12, take that in. We have been chosen, having been predestined, according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Job 42, 2 Job recognizes, you can do anything. You're God. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Understand that God, in choosing you, if you are seeking Him, if you are actually seeking God, you want to know Christ, the reason is because He's put it in you. He's awakened in you something that sin has suppressed so much so that we were previously dead in our transgressions. I don't want to get ahead. That's for a couple of weeks later. And He's made us alive. And in this process, there are no accidents. You are not here today. You're not watching online or listening to the audio by accident. God has purposed this in His perfect will. And the thing about God's will is He wills it. It's intentional. It's not, oh man, I forgot about, I, you know what, I'm going to grab them. They just showed up at church, let's bring them in too. God's not reactionary, and it's not arbitrary. The things that have come into your life, all of the junk, all of the hard things, all of the difficulties, and the tragedies, and the betrayals, and the heartbreak, every part of that. All of the joy, all of the celebration, every part of that, God has woven together in the most perfect and beautiful tapestry, all with the purpose, the, if I may, unthwartable purpose of bringing you to the foot of the cross in Jesus Christ so that you might be redeemed because you've been chosen. So that you might be adopted because you've been redeemed. All this because you have been purposed in Christ. No accidents. Always planned. God's purpose cannot be thwarted. Our involvement in God's glorious plan is both intentional and settled. Blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, informed, purposed. Now we get to some fun ones that I really hope you grasp. Because of all these other things that we've talked about, because of the rest of these things, we are included in Christ. We are included. We'll back up to verse 11. We're going to focus on 12 and especially 13. In Him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. In order that we, if you have a New Living Translation, it will point out to you interpretively, but accurately, we Jews, that's who he's talking about, in Him we were also chosen, 
in order, verse 12, that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, those who came from Israel, who had received the promises before the mystery was fully revealed, they, that's where the church began. The first believers were Jews. In order that we, who were the first to put our hope in Christ, might be for the praise of His glory. When the first disciples believed, God received the praise. When the Holy Spirit came into that upper room and swallowed them up in the glory and power of God, God received the praise. When Paul was struck blind on the road to Damascus and everything about him turned around, God received praise. When Peter, good Jew that he was, had his entire way of thinking turned around to tear down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, God received praise. Verse 13, And you also, if you have an NLT, it says, And you Gentiles also, we Jews and you Gentiles were also included in Christ. Jew and Gentile alike included when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. That's a powerful thing. In Romans, as Paul talks about the Jews and their belonging to God, he clarifies that not everyone who has the heritage, has the, the blood, the genetics of being a Jew is actually part of of the promise, part of Abraham's seed. We belong to Abraham by faith, if you're a Jew. And we belong to Christ as a Gentile by that same faith. We are included. All believers are joined to Christ and truly belong. All believers are joined to Christ and truly belong. Jew, Gentile, black, white, Republican, Democrat, American, anti-American, whatever that means. If you are from any people group, any economic class, any political belief, that is not what defines you. What defines all of us ultimately is are you in Christ or are you not? And if you are not, if you are outside of Christ, then all that is left for you is whatever righteousness you can find that you can muster up so that you can earn your way to God and be right with Him. How many of you know that's not possible? If I'm outside of Christ, I'm dead in my sins, and I face an eternity separated from God. But in Christ, I am included. There are no second-class Christians. Nobody who has come to Christ is less than someone else who has come to Christ. All of us together are insiders. We belong. If you ever feel like you don't really belong with the church, you don't really belong in Christ, you're not good enough, you're not holy enough, you don't have enough faith, understand it's not based on you. It's never been about you. It's all about Him. And He has chosen to include you when you receive Christ. 
you're part of the team, part of the family. Uh, just maybe it'll help you to understand this inclusion idea. If we think about an elementary school program. Now, uh, how many of you have ever been to an elementary school program, whether it's a play or a thing? Anybody? Okay. How, how many of you have been to a little league game or, or a little kid's soccer game, especially t-ball? Anybody go to that stuff? People don't generally go to those things because it's top flight entertainment, right? Nobody's buying tickets for this stuff. You go because you're connected to someone who's there, right? Maybe it's your child, your grandchild, your niece, nephew, a friend of a friend, somebody who goes to the church. There's a connection and you belong there, so you go because they matter to you. You probably don't care about whatever made-up Christmas carol that they've played around with. That You know, it's cute, but nobody but parents care, right? You realize that that's kind of how God approaches us. We are included because we are connected to Him. He loves us. We offer Him nothing. I don't go to my child's elementary program because it's such an amazing performance. Just like hopefully you don't come here because you're going to hear some amazing sermon. Talent means nothing. Inclusion means everything. We are in Christ because of Christ. Therefore, we are insiders, team members, family. Lastly, because of these truths, blessed, chosen, adopted, redeemed, informed, purposed, included, all of these things in Christ, don't miss out on this powerful reality that we are sealed. We are sealed in Him. God personally marks us as His own and guarantees our inheritance. He personally marks us as His own, and guarantees our inheritance. Second part of verse 13, we might say 13b into 14. When you believed, right, this is, this is where all, everything begins. When I believe, when I receive Him, we'll see later that this faith comes from God, but, but when I believe, something changes. That something is everything. When I believe, I receive a new life, a new identity. Who I was is dead, and I am reborn in Christ. When you believed, check this out, you were marked in Him with a seal. Picture in your mind, okay, the, the seal of a king or emperor, if we can perhaps identify better with a, a picture of something medieval. The signet ring of the king or the pope sealing a document or a letter, you put that wax down and you press that identifying mark that says, yes, this is authentically from me. We're marked in Him. Marked with a seal. What is that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. God's own dear presence to cheer and to guide. We are marked in Him with the seal, that seal being the promised Holy Spirit, who is, not what, not which, not that, who. This is the third person of the Godhead. This is God Himself in the person of the Holy Spirit, present in and with us. We are sealed with the Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance. 
Let me read that again. Who is a deposit, a down payment, earnest money, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. All of this to the praise of His glory. Now, there's a, a really important thing that we need to grasp here. Two things that go together. First, we are sealed because we are His. I discovered not too long ago that on the free antenna TV that I, that I can get, there's this Grit channel. Anybody watch Grit channel? Right? It's all Westerns all the time. Yes! I'm so excited. Now, I like Westerns. I like cows. So it works out. One of the things that happens all the time, and, and we're familiar with it, hopefully it'll help us get this picture, is when in, in the Old West, you didn't have fences, you didn't have, you know, save me a lot of time if you didn't have fences, but the, the cattle would roam. How do you know whose is whose? They would brand them. There's an identifying mark that they would heat this branding iron and they would brand it in the, the tough hide of the cow usually as a calf, so that you're keeping it. They wait till they get a little bit older. They don't do it when they're newborns. But they would brand this animal with a permanent mark. Not If you shave it into the hair, it's going to grow out, right? If you put a, a, a paint X on it, what good does that do? They would brand them so that anybody that would encounter these animals would say, okay, that belongs to the the Bar Z Ranch. That belongs to the person that marked them. We have been branded in Christ with the branding iron, the mark of the Holy Spirit, so that before God, this present company, and all the angels and demons, we have been branded as His. And no one, can ever take us from His hand. God has marked you. The second part of this is because you are His, He shifts metaphors a little bit and says this Holy Spirit in you, on you, branding you, is also a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. What does that mean? It means that when God brings these things all to fulfillment, as we saw earlier, He's put this plan in place. It's already settled as done. And in the fullness of time, God will bring it to fruition and it will, it will be a present reality. And until such time as Christ returns and we receive that inheritance, which is already ours in the heavenly realm, God Himself guarantees that there is no possibility of you not receiving the inheritance that He has promised. God, the very God, has Himself personally made Himself the seal, the deposit, the mark, the brand, the down payment to say, I'm with you, and I personally guarantee that everything that has been promised in Christ, everything that is spiritually true of Him is spiritually true of you, and you will receive it. Philippians 1.6, 
the one who started this good work in you, will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. It's a guarantee. You cannot lose. We'll look at this more next week, but understand that if God's doing all this, if God is the initiating one, if God is the guarantee if it's God that sanctifies you and makes you holy, if it's God that has set you apart, you can't lose. You have been predestined to be holy and blameless, perfectly conformed to the likeness of the Son. Every believer has that destiny. That doesn't mean we get lazy. No. What it means is when you stumble and you fall, do not despair. When you want to believe more than you actually in practicality believe, do not despair. When you love the Lord and you can't figure out why you keep being distracted by lesser loves, do not despair. He has sealed you, marked you, and guaranteed your perfect inheritance. As promised, He will deliver. Now what do we do about this? What are we supposed to do now that I know these truths about my identity in Christ? How ought I to respond to the reality that God's glory is displayed in His grace toward us in Christ? First, if you have not, receive the gift. I mean, if you're, if you're here or you're hearing this and, and this is new to you or foreign to you or maybe you've been in church but you haven't received Him, and you don't know, deep in your knower, that you belong to Jesus, then ask Him now. Trust Him now. Don't wait. Receive the gift of grace by faith in Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. Don't put hope in your good deeds. Don't put hope in your morality. Don't put hope in your, in your positions on social justice. Put all of your hope in Jesus Christ alone. Next, remember that it's not about you. Do you want to have peace? Do you want to be able to walk in the grace and peace that God is giving you? That God has already given you in Christ? Do you want to experience that? It starts by forget about yourselves. Concentrate on Him. Worship Him. It's not about me. It's not about my failures. It's not about my successes. It's not about my ability to live the life. It's about Jesus living the life through me. It's about Him. Third, recognize that whatever it is that you're going through, good, bad, or indifferent, whatever we face in this life, God is in it. He has a great overarching purpose and all things will be reconciled to Him in Christ. All things will at one final culmination be placed under the feet of Christ. And you, by receiving Him, have been made a partner in this. Not a partner in that you're you're working along with Christ to earn your salvation, but because Christ has purchased your salvation and you are redeemed, you are able, like a child with a father, to work alongside as his workmanship. 
bringing Him joy. Lastly, render to God the glory due His name. Give God the glory. All of the things that we read here, in case you were wondering, maybe I haven't made this clear, it's not about you. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Give Him the glory. All of these things that He has done in and for and through us are for the praise of His glorious grace. Because God has made me who I am in Christ, I can rest assured that I am who God's Word says I am to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for the knowledge that Jesus is the propitiation. He is the payment. And because of everything that You have done in Him, we now in Him can display Your grace. We in Christ can be for the praise of Your glorious grace. So Father, as we close this service, I pray that You would take our attention away from ourselves that you would remind us that every word you say is true, that every promise you make is trustworthy, that you declare that which is not to be, and it is. While we, in our sinfulness, have been eternally separated from you, that's our natural state. You, in your sovereign, beautiful grace, have declared us to be your true children by faith in the begotten one, the beloved Son. Praise be to your name, Lord, for you have blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.